0: Carl's passing out the passage for today in Romans and we will pick up where we left off last week as I've done often in trying to prepare the presentation each week I have to try to think how am I you know which which portions of Of Romans 8 are we going to discuss because if you remember in the introduction to this whole chapter this chapter defies outline (laughs) so anytime you go to pull things apart you almost have to force an outline for the sake of teaching and so you try to find some themes and you'll see right away in the passage I handed out today I've created an outline that you don't find in your Bible uh, you'll, you might find it in a couple of different books, but this was the best way, I felt, to approach these particular verses, 18 through 27, around the theme of groaning, because it's found three times. And I did not want to short shift Romans 8, 28, which is such a famous passage and is so full I figure yeah we'd spend 55 minutes on this and 5 minutes on it, Romans 8:28. I don't think that would have been fair. So we're going to hold that till our time next week. So let's read verses 18 through 27 together so we have an idea of the topic of today's passage starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation who is to futility, not only, but because of him who subjected, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay A hope that's seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know but to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit tells tells intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if you have your Bible open, you will see that verses 18 through 25 is one paragraph, and verses 26 through 30, actually, yeah, 26 through 30 is another paragraph. So seriously, what I've done with this outline (laughs) breaks up the passage. I guess you could say from a pastoral standpoint, she gives you three points in a poem. Um, (laughs) you You can kind of follow some of the logical process that Paul has here. But we have to start with verse 18. You can't ignore that verse because it technically sets the stage for what follows. We start with that word for, which we've talked about. It's not the word therefore. It is the word for, meaning this is the next stage in a logical con, um, a logical progression. And if I remember my stats right, the word for is used like 16 times in chapter eight. Hmm? I didn't hear you. Okay, anyway. The idea is that it just keeps moving from one stage to the next. However, note the intentionality of Paul's writing here. He says, for I consider. And you could actually translate as, I have concluded. He's not saying consider. He's saying, I consider this. I've already discussed it, I've already dug into it, I've already looked at it, and I have concluded that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's important because you have someone who has lived it and is saying, "Um, you've heard me talk about it before but I've had my own things and I, I know what I'm talking about. I consider this to be a truth. Now, one writer talks about the fiery trials that we live in our lives. He's a guy named Ronald Dunn. He says, "Why, why, God, are you allowing this to happen?" And this fellow had lost children, lost family, lost jobs, lost homes. I mean, he just everything was gone. And then he writes, "I have determined that God is not an arsonist. He doesn't set the fire." He is a refiner, and that's a completely different process. The arsonist is out to destroy you, just for the sake and for the fun of this destruction. God, as a refiner, and we can take that metaphor. We've, you may have heard it a million times about how to temper steel, how to make something. Let's say you just want to take a screwdriver, create a flathead screwdriver. You take the metal, you flatten it, shape it, burn it orange hot, and immediately stick it into cold water. Boom! It's ready. But now it's brittle. And if, you, if you've ever had cheap screwdrivers, <laughs> that you go and you buy and you turn once and it starts... It has not been tempered. It's cheap, it's malleable, it's, it, it's no good. But to temper it you have to put it in the fire again but not orange hot it has to be blue hot at the exact right temperature it be touched the metal starts to turn blue now you don't put it in water you just simply set it aside and let it rest and now it will withstand the next stress against it That is how God works. He puts us in situations. It may feel like it's orange hot, burning hot, and we are brittle. over and over again, He refines us. Notice also, it says, the sufferings of this present time. I did an entire talk this last May at a conference out in North Carolina Uh, comparing the two words for time in the Greek. You have chronos, our clock time, which is linear, and kairos, which are appointed times, when God enters. So as I put it very vividly in, in that particular speech, I said we have chronos, which is linear, but God comes in at an appointed time and creates something special. We live in Kronos, and we sometimes miss the Kairos. The word here is Kairos. This isn't just incidental, we stumble into it. This is God-appointed suffering. This is God-appointed time. I know, I conclude that the suffering of this appointed time what we are going through, what you are going through right now. We miss that in the English, don't we? We also read it very quickly. But he is saying, I have concluded that what we go through, the heaviness, the weight on the shoulders, the burden we carry. In fact, we don't need to go look for suffering. Suffering finds us we might try to hide from it we might try to ignore that it's happening but it's going to find us and every time it does why are we surprised? why are we surprised? <laughs> we have some mechanism in our bodies in our minds that say oh everything's going to always be perfect and it's not But when we consider the sufferings of the present time, it is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. That Greek word there for comparing, for not worth comparing? Find a pen that works. Let's see. Always go to the bag. These are the ones that always work. The Greek word axios It is from the Greek word agō, which means to cause to move, and in Greek uh, terminology or figure, in fig, it is figuratively refers to when something is heavy enough to create motion in a balance. In other words, to move the scales. What he's trying to say is that what we are going through is not even worth putting on the scale. It is so momentary, it's so fleeting, it's a feather duster next to a bowling ball. It's not going to move the scale. When you make that comparison, it's but a wisp compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Now, let me flip over to—I'll uh, well, do the flipping—2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul writes, "For this slight, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." That's your parallel passage. Write it in the margin in your Bible. Next to 8, 18 of Romans, put 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he says this, I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing to the weight. Now, way back when, I did a study on glory, or the concept of glory. For those of you who are in the class, can you tell me what I said? Of course not. You don't remember. I even had to go find my notes on it and find out what I said. But it was when we were talking about the transfiguration of Christ, where the glory of God was revealed in that moment. The Greek word dogza, D-O-X-A is is translated as glory. When the Septuagint was translating the Hebrew into Greek the Hebrew word for glory hmm, is the word kabod. Okay, so that's Hebrew and this is Greek they couldn't find a word that truly translated the word kabod, because the underlying meaning of the word kabod is weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. So in 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about this weight of glory, it's the kabod of kabod. It's the weight of weight. It's the glory of glory. The translators at that time looked around in the Greek language and there was a word dogza that was never actually used to mean something that big. They reused the word and infused meaning into it and it became the most common word for glory. In fact We add ology when we sing it, doxology, to give glory to God. That's this glory. 81 years ago, this fella, this British guy, may have heard of him, C.S. Lewis. He did a sermon called The Weight of Glory. You can buy the book. It's a tiny little book. They actually have to add other addresses into it to make a book out of it. Because it's one sermon called The Weight of Glory. And he focused on this concept. What is it? What is this glory of which we speak? And I'm going to quote two paragraphs from the book here. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, We want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not merely we don't do it merely to see the beauty, though God knows there's enough bounty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot, cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that will, it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in when human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. That idea, that inexpressibleness of the glory of God, we try to talk about it, Uh, In fact, when I lectured on the concept of glory, I just find myself fumbling. Even Thomas Watson, in his uh, book, The Body of Divinity, the only definition he'd come up for glory is the sparkling of deity. Think about that. That's a beautiful way of describing this glory. It's that shimmering that's there. And in this verse is the promise that it will be apokalathomai to us, revealed. It's the root word for apocalypse. That's where we get the word revelation. The word revelation means apocalypse. It doesn't mean bad things and all, everything blows up. It just means suddenly we can see. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That is what Paul is writing about in this sentence. Consider that the sufferings, the heavy things you are struggling with, they can't even tip the scales. Compared to that glory that is to come, that is to be revealed to us in the end. Kind of a nice way to start this passage. Because then he goes into the three groanings. We have the groanings of creation, the groanings of ourselves, and the groanings of the Spirit. So let's look at the groanings of creation the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. <clears throat> that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, we have to define creation to even get close to understanding this passage. So what do you think he's talking about? If you were to just read this for the first time and you see that word that the creation is awaiting, what are we talking about here? Everything on the whole earth. Animals, trees, plants, everything. Okay, but not us. Well, we're part of the creation, but I think we're special. Okay. Well said. I think we're growing warm too, but the fact that the birds that sing—you mm-hmm. know—when you think about it, when when His Lord comes and we're in the new heavens and new earth, the songs of the birds are going to be really different. They're going to be brighter, and everything is going to be incredible. We can't even imagine. We cannot imagine. Another way of looking at the definition is what comes after this passage because then he turns it inwardly to us. So obviously we're not included in this first one. John Murray said it this way, he says, angels are not included in the definition because they're not subjected to vanity or to the bondage of corruption. Satan and his demons are not included here because they cannot be regarded as longing for the manifestation of the Son of God. And they will not share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The children of God themselves are not included because they are distinguished from the creation, as you mentioned. The unbelieving of mankind cannot be included because the earnest expectation does not characterize them. So it's not even including the unbelievers. In other words, all of rational creation is excluded by the terms of 20 to 23. The only thing left is the non-rational creation, the animate and the inanimate. And that is just it. Paul is talking about the physical world of matter, plants, and animals. His argument is that nature is in a presently imperfect state and that it is longing for the day of liberation. Paul is personifying nature, but he doesn't mean that inanimate nature has personal feelings that correspond to ours. He means only that nature is not yet all that God has predestined it to be. It is waiting for true fulfillment. And if nature is waiting, we should be willing to wait as well, knowing the glorious outcome is certain. Now, we have to be really careful with this passage especially today with today's religion called climate change. They use this verse. They use this passage. I came across a book, I didn't buy it, called The Greening of Paul, the Apostle. And re-fashions everything that Paul talks about is actually talking about nature. Union Theological Seminary, was it two years ago, three years ago now, they actually had a ceremony where they worshiped with the plants. They brought the plants into the sanctuary and they communed with them. Where was this? Union Theological Seminary. A bastion of evangelical thinking. <laughs> Are you kidding me? They have. They, in other words, they're saying that they had feelings and they were apologizing to the plants for making them feel bad. Now, okay, you know, when I hack off a limb off a tree, I don't apologize to it. I might go, well, that was a mistake. (laughs) It looks worse now, but uh, maybe no one will notice. there is a religion that has been created around us and it's interesting to study this passage and read commentaries that are older than 50 years old because they don't talk about this issue. It wasn't a thing. It's just simply not even brought up. However, all you have to do is Google Romans chapter 8 and climate change, and you will be amazed of how much literature is being expounded using this passage as a reason why we need to take care of the earth because it's so fragile. Now, this is where we have to be careful. A biblical view of creation, in my opinion, is that it is God's handiwork. We must respect and value God's handiwork, but not worship it. And there's your difference. You can be an evangelical Bible-believing Christian and believe in the sacredness of God's creation absolutely but don't bring the tree and put it on the podium and ask him to give a sermon it's not going to happen it doesn't make sense you also have those that take it to the point where the creation is more important than the person so that something is going terribly wrong, or a situation is incorrect, or something like that, and go, oh, well, we need to protect that, and not the individual. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Now, granted, we, you know, it's really hard, because people will personify animals, um, especially their pets, uh, but this isn't what is being talked about here. It's a bigger picture. Secondly, we have to know that decay is fundamental in nature. Scientists call it the second law of thermodynamics, which means anytime energy is expended, there is uh, many times there's a return, but something is wasted in the exchange. So while the sun sends out its rays of heat and radiation, it doesn't receive anything back because its engine creates more. But there will be an end to its fuel. And at some point our sun will no longer be yellow. It will become a red dwarf. And it will not put out its heat. It's not going to happen on Tuesday, so don't worry. Uh, We're talking millions and millions of years, if the Lord tarries. But the way science works, they look at that and go, there's going to be an end of this sun someday, because we see it in other stars. Mm -hmm. That they decay and, and are destroyed. And when you look at Scripture, let's go to Eden. The Garden of Eden. What was one of the pronouncements by God after Adam and Eve had sinned? What would happen to the ground? It was cursed. Which means it wasn't before. So the perfection of God's creation was actually undermined by the sin of Adam and Eve. And the punishment was that the the ground is cursed and thorns and thistles shall rise. And then what was the joyful thing that was handed to women? (laughs) Pain. Pain. Pain in childbirth. Which suggests there probably wasn't and there probably wasn't going to be a need for childbirth at that point. It was perfect as God created it. Now, I'm going to obviously, ultimately, I'll probably fall apart in my explanation and understanding here. Other than to try to say, if this passage is correct, Paul is saying that there was a perfection in creation that has, is no longer there. And consequently, creation itself, the inanimate, non-rational, non-thinking creation, is groaning under that weight. 1 John 5.19b says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The squatter runs the house. Satan is there. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the slime of the serpent is on all of our Edens. That pervasiveness is in everything we see. So I had written this down, and then later I found it in Lloyd-Jones, who actually kind of felt smart. But I wrote this and said, nature tries to renew itself every year only to succumb, to decay. And then I came across this quote from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And like I said, I felt really smart. He said, I wonder whether the phenomena of the spring supplies us with a part of an answer to this passage. Nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be be going through some sort of birth pangs year by year. Unfortunately, it doesn't succeed. For spring leads only to summer, and summer leads to autumn, and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity of the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is within it, but it cannot do so. It fails every time, yet still goes on trying, as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together. It has been doing so for a very long time. Nature still repeats the effort annually, but it will be set free from one day from this corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isn't that an interesting thought? To see looking at nature in light of Romans 8 that this corruption, this bondage to corruption will eventually also be uh, will also receive glory huh, I guess I never thought of it that way this, usually this passage is kind of just glossed over in fact I don't know how many times in my studies I was really struggling to find expositors that would focus on just this passage. They usually kind of give a tip of the hat to it and then move on to the next paragraph because the next paragraph is where everybody lives. We don't necessarily think about creation in this way. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Wow. And yet, we have the promise that it is going to be restored. Now, remember I had read, uh, read from Revelation 21 before. Well, I'll read from it again. Same chapter, different verses. Before, i had read from 21, 3, and 4. This time, I'll read verses 1 and verse 5. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And verse 5 And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the promise. We miss it. We don't make that comparison that when Christ returns and sets down the new kingdom everything is going to be made new. if we want to go back into the Old Testament prophecy on this, we would go back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall die, lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. What a promise. And we don't see it because we read this passage in such a twisted way, especially modern day people. So we move to verses 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, which means we're special. We are spirit filled. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So I have a couple funny examples of groaning. Um, first one is my own. So I was in Nashville this past week for three days. I uh, was at a, an event there and all day Thursday basically was me standing around talking to people and it, I could feel it in my bones just so, probably around 4, 30, 5 o'clock, you know, this person said, hey, you know, pull up a chair. Well, I did one of those old men, very loud groans as I got moved into the chair, and the knees popped, the shoulder popped, and I'm just like, <laughs> It was heard by at least a dozen people. I was like, whoa! (laughs) I said, I really needed to sit down. (laughs) And I felt, okay, that was embarrassing. Uh, Very classic old man sitting. Well, second funny one was a woman named Clara who wrote it, she wrote it this way. She goes, it was one of the worst days of my life. The washing machine broke down, the telephone kept ringing, my head ached, the mail carrier brought a bill that I had no money to pay. (sighs) Almost to the breaking point, I lifted my one-year-old into his high chair, I leaned my head against the tray, and I began to cry. Mm. And without a word, my son took out his pacifier and stuck it in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And you go, (laughs) what a picture (laughs) but when you are at the end the surprise of help can come from outside the typical and norm (laughs) we're all visiting that one (laughs) but there's also an example that's not quite so funny Bertrand Russell was an atheistic philosopher, very well known, especially in the 60s. And he wrote this. The life of a man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none tarry long. One by one, as we march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death, Brief and powerless is man's life. On him, all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way for man, condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness. It remains only to cherish, ere the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. The hopelessness in that. People try to live this way. In hopelessness. Sometimes in fear of the dark, and so they'll do whatever they can to avoid the dark. Either to medicate it, or drown it. In any sorts of ways of avoiding that dark because they don't have the light or the first fruits of the Spirit in them. But we as Christians I, I wrote here I said, do we groan for the throne? <laughs> To be free from trial, tribulation, trauma, testing, terror, tension, and times continuous ticking. Yeah, that was fun to write. There was a lot of T's there. To be free from headaches, heartaches, backaches, stomachaches, earaches, and bodyaches. 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 1 and 2, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling. We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, Remember last week's lessons where I talked about Roman adoption and how big a deal that is? They didn't adopt children. They adopted young adults because children died. And they were hand-selected to take over the role. If I remember correctly, I had, let's see, Julius Caesar August, uh, adopted Augustine. Augustine adopted Tiberius. Tiberius adopted Claudius, Claudius adopted Caligula, Caligula adopted Nero. They selected their successor. The Roman Senate did it the same way. And for God to say, I choose you to be my heir. What an extraordinary gift that is. And he says it again here. We wait eagerly for this adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. You can flip over to, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, is that where they talked about the resurrection of the body? There's a lot in there. And we, when we studied that, a year and a half ago, <laughs> seems like yesterday, um, there's that constant question of what is our new body going to look like? And I think Tom's answer is the best I've ever heard. You're not going to be disappointed. We have no idea. You know, it's, it's probably nothing that we think or can even imagine. But the idea that God would promise us something that we'd go, Oh, phooey, I want his. <laughs> you know, when you're in heaven, well, get out. Uh, I just don't see that as the issue but he's not talking about it in that specific nature other to say it is something to look forward to verse 24 for in this hope we are saved saved by hope and note we've got hope three more times For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. G.K. Chesterton wrote, he said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it's not a virtue at all. As long as it matters, hope is merely flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. When we come to the end of that rope, per se, to use the cliche, <clears throat> as I wrote in, it was a long time ago, someone was talking to me about being at the end of their rope, and I went, "It's not your rope." When you're at the end of the rope, realize you're not, you're not holding on to something that's yours. And if you let go, God is there. Well, as Pastor Jim says, always, even to the end of your rope. Oh, that's not the passage. Even to the end of the age. For in this hope... And isn't it fascinating how verse 24 through 25 sounds a lot like Hebrews 11.1? Faith is assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. That echo is really strong here. The hope that is seen is not hope. The hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. And notice it. We groan, but we also wait, and we also hope. All in this passage. There is a blessed hope, Titus 2.13. There is the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. You have one of the three virtues in 1 Corinthians 13, of faith, hope, and love. And in Romans 5... We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Hope is the measure of true Christianity, which is through and through otherworldly. Pseudo-Christianity always looks chiefly at this world. Popular Christianity is entirely this worldly and is not interested in the other world. But the true Christian has it, as I mainly, on the world which is to come. It is not primarily concerned even with deliverance from hell and punishment and all the things that trouble us and weariness. That belongs to the past. True Christianity sets its affections on things which are above, not on on things which are on this earth. It is that which says we look not at the things which are, are seen, But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. I'll read that again. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. Then we come to the third one. Now, there's been some theological debate about the groaning of the Spirit. Because, how can the Holy Spirit groan? I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit God? Isn't part of the Trinity? I mean, Almighty? Why would there be struggle? Why would there be a groaning? (coughs) well a great commentator from the past named Godet put it this way he summarizes the three groanings like this what a statement of the unutterable disorder which reigns throughout all creation nature throughout all her bounds has a confused feeling of it and from her bosom there rise a continual lament claiming a renovation from heaven. The redeemed themselves are not exempt from this groaning and wait for their own renewal, which shall be a sign of universal restoration. And finally, the Spirit, who is intimate with the plans of God for our glory and who distinctly beholds the ideal of which we have but glimpses, pursues the realization of it with ardor, A R D O U R, which is a passion that goes beyond mere words. The Spirit comes in alongside us when we are weak. As it starts, likewise, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, what kind of weakness? What what do you mean? What do you mean, likewise? Like what? Well, is he talking about the groaning, or is he talking about the prayer in verses 15 to 17, where it says, where we cry, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself bear witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness." Could that be what he's talking about? Maybe. Obviously, differing opinions. But we do know that we do not pray as we should. How about Job 7, 20-21? Why have you made me your target? Why... Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? Or Elijah in 1 Kings 9, 19. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Or how about Habakkuk? Chapter 1, verse 2. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? We have uttered those prayers. We have got gotten to that point where we're just helpless <laughs> and I will say that often times if I ever get to that point where I just feel like I can't do it anymore and I pray that prayer God comes along and goes finally finally you're going to let me get involved you've been praying for your own strength Lord help me do this Lord, help me overcome this. Lord, change the circumstances in which I am currently involved. And he's just patiently waiting for us to say, Lord, help my unbelief. And then the Spirit can intercede at groanings too deep for words. This is not a verse about tongues. Tongues. It is used as one, but it is not talking about that at all. That's a complete refashioning of the nature of what's talking about. What it means, because for one thing, tongues is verbal. Right? What does it talk about? Two deep four words. There's no words. So obviously there's no exp- um, verbal expression here. And then he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I mean, I could go on to a long excursus on trying to figure out what is the will of God. But I've even done an entire uh, presentation on that. Uh, But think of it. Even Jesus prayed for Peter, quote, Luke twenty-two thirty-two: 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then Peter goes, but I believe in the next passages and before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Jesus had been praying for Peter before that, knowing full well of his weaknesses. And Peter failed, and then was changed in the midst of his weakness. But the God who searches our heart knows this mind of the Spirit. He knows what the will of God is. He is God, and helps us pray in the right way. Well, let me put it that, let me, I think it's probably better to have someone smarter than me, like Charles Spurgeon, rape. Right? Uh, say something here. Never give up praying. Even when Satan suggests that prayer is in vain, pray in his teeth. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. If the heavens are brass and your prayer only echoes above your head, pray on if month after month your prayer appears to have failed, if you have no answer, continue to draw close to the Lord. Do not abandon the mercy seat for any reason. If it is a good thing that you have been asking for, and if you are sure that it is according to the divine will, wait, tarry, pray, weep, plead, wrestle, and agonize, until your prayer is answered. And I have to stop here, and the answer might be no. If your heart is cold, don't wait until your heart warms. Pray your soul into heat with the help of the ever-blessed Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness, who makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. This is our admonition. Those sufferings, those difficult times that we have all been placed in circumstances, we could, if we were to each take 30 minutes, which wouldn't be enough, for each of us to talk about trials in our lives, not just today, we would be here for a week. And yet, here we are now, learning, praying, seeking God's face, trusting in His divine providence, and in the hope of final glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. (coughs) To give us such an extraordinary passage of Scripture. One that we should be meditating on day and night. To understand how our momentary affliction, our sufferings are nothing compared to the the weight of glory that is waiting and will be revealed to us. And yet in the midst of that, we can still pray. We can still ask for your, your sustenance, for your help. For your guidance in the times that are just beyond our understanding and that point you take us into your arms and show us your glory in jesus name amen